Hey everyone, and welcome to the 31st episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Well, this is the first interview that I've conducted since I got to school this semester. Um, so bear with me, the audio is a little interesting, uh, trying to get used to the acoustics of the downstairs, and we have wood floor, so um, it kind of echoes, so I had to use my headphones and make some interesting noises every once in a while, so yeah, bear with me. Um, this is also my second video interview, so if you're interested in actually watching the interview, you can go on YouTube. Um, but I will be uploading the audio on every platform, so you guys will be able to listen to that if you prefer that that medium. But yeah, I'm interviewing Mike Meharry, who I've had on the show twice before. I figured since I haven't done an interview in a while, it might be good to bring him back on and interview someone I know pretty well. Um, but I want to read his bio here. Michael Meharry serves as the National Communications Director for the 10th Amendment Center and the Managing Editor of the Shift Gold website. He hosts his own podcasts, Thoughts from Meharry Head, as well as the Friday Gold Rap Podcast and It's Your Dime interview series for Shift Gold. He is also the author of four books and considering that it is Constitution Day tomorrow, he is also the author of Constitution Owner's Manual. And if you're interested in that book, I actually interviewed him on um, episode two and I will link to that below this podcast as well in the show notes. But I did interview him about that book and if you are interested specifically in the Constitution, I highly recommend that interview um but yeah we'll just jump into the podcast today i really just wanted to talk about everything that's going on in the economy we're still seeing a lot of uncertainty in the market right now um jerome powell made an announcement today i just want to hear michael's opinion of it um i also want to see what type of work he's working on at the 10th amendment center and then also ask him a little bit about the gospel and how he's kind of getting through these difficult times in 2020 so uh yeah here's the interview Awesome. Well, Mike Meharry, thank you for coming on. Um, this is the third time that you've been on the show, and I really appreciate that you keep coming back. <laughs> well, I appreciate you asking. Yeah, of course. Um, so today, Jerome Powell made another announcement, and he seems to be reiterating the same thing that he has been for the last couple of weeks. Do you kind of want to break down what he's been saying, um, what the goal of the Fed is, and what's to be expected from that? Yeah, so we had the uh, Federal Open Market Committee meeting today, which if people aren't familiar, it's basically the body that sets monetary policy, interest rates, things like that. And and really, there was no surprise at all. Uh, in, in fact, if you understand the dynamics in the economy, Jerome Powell gave us exactly what you would expect. So basically what he said today was that he reiterated that the Fed is going to continue holding interest rates at 0%. Uh, for really the foreseeable future. Uh, I think they've they've admitted that they plan on keeping him at that level until like 2023, which is actually a little bit longer than they had originally been saying. And then, of course, quantitative easing, which is uh, in effect money printing and, and buying U.S. debt, that's going to continue into the foreseeable future. Uh, and so really nothing new. I think the kind of interesting thing is, is that he, they, they've really hammered on this, that they're going to allow interest uh, or inflation to run hot. Uh, so normally the target was to have 2% inflation, which, you know, is kind of baffling when you really think about it, because what they're telling you is they're going to devalue your money 2% every single year. I mean, that's on purpose. So, so your dollar is worth 2% less every single year by policy design. 
Uh, now they're going to allow it to run even above that 2% for, uh, I think the words that Powell used were for some time. And uh, so all of this is really just designed to keep the air in an artificial bubble economy. Uh, if the Federal Reserve wasn't printing all of this money, if it wasn't holding interest rates artificially low, uh, we would not see the levels in the stock market that we're seeing today. We would not see housing prices where they are today. The economy would uh, fall down where it naturally should be, given the actual economic dynamics that we have going on when you've had, in effect, a, an intentional government shutdown of the economy. So all of this money printing is basically just a way to artificially prop up the economy. Um, Peter Schiff likes to use the analogy, it's like giving a drug addict a drug. And the economy has been on this drug now for years, and there's no way that the Federal Reserve can take the drug away. And that's exactly why the Fed is now going to allow inflation to run even hotter than its uh, you know, old target because it knows that it cannot take the drug away without sending the uh, addict into an overdose. Uh, so really, that's where we are. Like I said, no big surprise. The thing that was kind of interesting to me is that initially on this news, the stock market rallied, which is what you would expect. But then uh, the stocks actually finished down on the day. And to me, that indicates that maybe, you know, with with a drug addict, you always need more and more of the drug to keep the high. You know, maybe jawboning uh, it up and saying we're going to keep it at this level is not going to be enough. And we're going to have to actually see, uh, you know, even more uh, draconian measures by the Fed down the road to keep that stimulus, to keep that high going. So that, that was kind of interesting. Right. And there was kind of like a scare, I believe, two weeks ago where um, the S&P hit an all time high and I believe it crashed. It was like a three day slide or something like that. And um, people like Paul Krugman were saying, if you know or if you presume to know why this happened, then you're not paying attention or that, you know, you're you're dumb or something like that, something along <laughs> those lines. Um, but I mean, we've been we've been saying that this was going to happen for years. Um, yeah. So another question I have is when Jerome Powell talks about inflation, are they talking about the rising in prices or because they're not specifically referring to the printing of money, are they? Yeah, that's a really good question and a really important distinction to make. When you hear the Federal Reserve or government officials, you know, the president, when they talk about inflation, when they use that word, they're talking about consumer prices, rising consumer prices. And that's how it's measured uh, by the official government numbers. You'll hear the term CPI, which is the consumer price index, which is the way they measure price inflation. That's not really what inflation is. The true definition of inflation is an increase in the money supply. So we have massive inflation right now. The Federal Reserve has printed and put into circulation, not literally printed. I mean, you know, they're not sitting in the basement of the Fed building, you know, running a printing <laughs> press and, and shooting dollar bills out. But I, I maybe just to kind of give the easy explanation of what the Federal Reserve does, the U.S. Treasury you know, the, the federal government is borrowing trillions of dollars to pay for all of this stimulus spending. In order to do that, it has to borrow money. It's not bringing enough in taxes to pay for all of this. So we're going into debt. To cover that, what the federal, or what the government does, the U.S. Treasury, it sells bonds on the open market, treasury bills. Uh, and so in essence, it borrows money from the public. And then at some point, it pays that money back with interest. 
what happens with the Federal Reserve is the Fed goes out on the open market and it actually buys treasury bonds. So it creates artificial demand. Uh, it takes a lot of those bonds off the market. It allows the government to sell more debt than it would otherwise be able to do. Uh, so in order to do this, the Federal Reserve basically just creates money out of thin air. They write a check, they send it to the uh, the bank or the owner of the bond, and then the owner of the bond, the bond goes on to the Federal Reserve's books, and then that money goes into circulation. So that's how money is printed. It's basically just like, you know, imagine if you could just write a check and pay for anything you wanted to, and you didn't have to have that money in your account. That's exactly what the Federal Reserve does, which is a really good gig. I wish I could figure out how to do that <laughs> without getting arrested and put in prison for uh, counterfeiting. Um, so that's what the Federal Reserve is doing. It's creating money out of thin air. And that is the very definition of inflation. So the question becomes, where does that money go? You know, it, it, it can go into consumer prices. And, and oftentimes we see that. We've seen it in the 1970s. We've seen it in other economies. But it doesn't have to go into consumer prices. Inflation can manifest in assets, which is really what we've seen here in the United States since 2008. So it goes into things like the stock market, into real estate. It creates artificial bubbles in these asset prices. It makes people feel wealthier. And then people borrow even more money because they have these valuable assets, which are really just pumped up bubbles. Uh, the problem with it is, is eventually all bubbles pop. And when that happens, then you see a massive collapse, which is exactly what we had in 2008, and which is exactly what we're going to have at some point down the road. Uh, I think we were heading in that direction before coronavirus. If you look at the dynamics in uh, late 2019, going into the early part of 2020, there were already signs that the uh, economy was rickety. Coronavirus is kind of uh, I think kicked the can down the road in a lot of ways because it gave the Fed an excuse to pump even more stimulus into this system. But at, at some point, all of these bubbles eventually pop. And, you know, I think eventually what we're going to see is we will see price inflation, rising prices, uh, and, and then a collapse in these asset bubbles. But yeah, I, to go back to the question, answer it simply, inflation is the creation of money. The Federal Reserve is cre creating trillions of dollars in it right now. It's not necessarily manifesting in prices. Although, you know, I talked to my wife the other day. She was uh, noticing that grocery prices are, have gone up significantly over the last few months. So there is price inflation. You know, government numbers, they manage to manipulate them in such a way as a lot of time it hides a lot of the real inflation. I've been told that if you go back to the way they calculated CPI back in the 1990s, we would be looking at 10 to 12 percent inflation today. But they they, you know, changed the way they do the numbers so they can right. kind of hide that so they can continue with the policies that they need uh, in order to keep this artificial bubble floating along. Yeah. Now, can you explain kind of the justification that one might use um, to argue that we need prices to rise? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I right. don't understand that. It's it, it's. Um, you know, it's Keynesian economics, and, mm -hmm. and I'm not really steeped in Keynesianism, but, uh, you know, I mean, common sense to me tells you that it's good for prices to go down, right? I mean, it's good for the consumer, certainly. Right. Uh, I want my prices to go down. And in a natural market economy that is functioning properly, prices will go down when there's prosperity. I mean, you just think about the evolution of technology. You look at something like, uh, you know, like a cell phone. Uh, and you know, I'll date myself here, but I remember when the first cell phone came out. In fact, uh, my boss had one, 
And this was probably 1987, 88, somewhere in that neighborhood. And it was this giant box that, like, he had to carry with a handle. And it had a literal, you know, like, you see the old phones with the cord. It literally had a cord connected to this box. And it cost him, like, you know, three or $4,000. And it was, like, $1,000 a month for this service. Now I have a phone that, that virtually is a computer in my pocket that, you know, cost me 20 bucks a month. That right. is really the natural flow of prices as productivity increases, as technology improves, as people get more efficient, prices tend to drop. For some weird reason, somebody's decided somewhere that that's a bad thing. And I think the reason uh, that that I don't think it has anything to do with the consumer or the public, I think what it really has to do with is that we have the biggest, most powerful government in the history of the world. It is spending far more than it could ever bring in in taxes. And in order to do this, you have to have the central bank backstopping the debt. So they're going to tell us that, oh, yeah, we need inflation. And if we have deflation, it's going to be this horrible thing. That's a cover up and an excuse to maintain this massive government spending that we have, which, again, at some point is eventually going to collapse because, uh, you know, there's no such thing as a free mu- free lunch. And no matter what the uh, the monetary modern monetary theory people tell you, you have to pay the debt at some point in time, right. either through taxation or through uh, the inflation tax that, you know, falls on you and I and, and the poor and uh, people who are uh, are are trying to save money, all of that is being devalued by this policy. I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty awful personally. It's basically stealing from poor people. So. Right. Yeah, I agree. And now just to make a um, distinction, I don't know if this is correct, but uh, it seems to me that there's actually a few ways that they create inflation. Um, Is it correct that they also do? So on the way that you described, like the buying of assets and everything, but also um, lowering the interest rates. Correct. Uh, okay. And yeah, can you explain that process? Because yeah, I do sure. know that um, a f- the year before we, we saw coronavirus, Jerome Powell did lower interest rates and everyone was saying that that was another sign that uncertain times were ahead and no right. one really believed us. That is correct. So, so it, it kind of creates it in a different sort of way because what lowering interest rates does is it encourages borrowing. Um, interest rates are basically just a price like any other price. It's the price of money. It's how much it costs you to borrow X amount of money. And in a natural economy with no intervention, that price of money will fluctuate in a way that will steer the market towards savings or towards spending, depending on what's necessary. When, when artificially low interest rates encourage people to borrow money that they wouldn't ordinarily borrow. You know, if I can borrow for 1% interest instead of five, then it incentivizes me to try to borrow money. Well, the way the the banking system works, you know, the banks have uh, X amount of money that people have deposited into their, their uh, institutions. And so, you know, theoretically, they can loan that money out uh, and, and make interest, and then they make money, and then you get your money back if you need it. But we have what's called fractional reserve banking, which means that the the bank doesn't have to have all of the money that it's loaning out. So, you know, if it's going to loan out $100, it doesn't have to have $100 to back that up. It only has to have like 10%, say. So uh, the feder- the bank can actually create money through doing loans. As long as it has $10, it can loan out 100 That 100 is just 
you know, a, a new entry into a ledger. So it's not really even the government creating it through the loaning system. It's the fractional reserve banking system. And, and there's even some debate among free market um, uh, economists as to whether or not frank, fractional reserve banking is, is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but, but it certainly does create inflation and incre increases the money supply. And again, artificially low interest rates allow the federal government to borrow more money because they're paying interest on all of the money that they're borrowing. So uh, it makes it easier to borrow. And that's why the Federal Reserve has to hold these interest rates artificially low. You know, the, the federal government now has, I think the last time I looked, were $26.7 trillion is the national debt. So the federal government's paying interest on all of that. Uh, right now, it's paying very low interest, virtually zero, because of the artificially low interest rates. Imagine if the interest rate went up to even, say, 5%. Well, that would increase the amount of money the government would have to pay in interest, I mean, just astronomically. Mm -hmm. So, and again, that's another reason that, that you've got the government. Here's the bottom line. The government is, the government along with the central bank, is effectively sticking its hands into the free market of money and manipulating it in such a way to advantage the government so that it can borrow and spend. In, in you know, I, I've made the case that the Federal Reserve is the engine that allows the biggest government in the history of the world to operate. If you didn't have the Fed backstopping all of this borrowing through both the quantitative easing and the interest rates, basically the federal government would not be able to maintain the welfare and warfare state that we have today. It would be impossible because it would only it would have to tax us. And there's no way that the public would accept the level of taxation necessary to maintain the level of spending that we have today. So it's a way to hide the tax from the general public. Everybody thinks, oh, it's free because my taxes got cut by Donald Trump. Well, no, they didn't because the federal government's uh, devaluing the uh, the value of your dollar every single day. So you're paying an inflation tax in effect. Right. And it seems that there's just so many motivations for them doing so as well. Like they also seem to be de devaluing the dollar so that they can pay off the debt in right. a certain way. Right. And I mean, you could just keep going, um, yeah. but it's all at the expense of the poor, like you said. Um, I know Jerome Powell also made a comment today uh, he said that he was surprised that all of the QE after 2008 and 2012 didn't create asset bubbles. Um, <laughs> isn't isn't that just ridiculous? Uh, yeah, it's like how how clueless can you possibly be? Um, you know, just look at the stock market. And I tell people this all the time. This is something I've been hammering over uh, on the Shift Gold website and on my my Friday Gold Wrap podcast. If you look at the dynamics of the economy, I mean, just think about just last week. I, I call Thursday Unemployment Thursday because that's the day that we get the weekly uh, jobless numbers. It, they Every week they tally how many people have filed for unemployment in the past week. Last week, I think it was like 880,000 people filed for unemployment. Um, everybody was all excited because, ooh, it's under a million. <laughs> but, you know, when you look at the dynamics, when you look at what has happened to the economy over the last uh, six months or so with the government shutdowns, uh, you know, movie theaters are still closed. If you go on an airplane, that there's hardly anybody on the airplanes. Uh, so the travel industry has been decimated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of small businesses that have just simply gone under or haven't reopened yet. Just a massive contraction in the economy. And yet, as you mentioned last week, the S&P 500 or not the S&P 500 is the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ 
you know, set its all-time record and went over 12,000 for the first time ever. That doesn't make any sense. There's no way that the stock market, if, if you believe that the stock market reflects the economy, there's no way that the stock market should be that high given the dynamics of the economy. This is all created by this this Federal Reserve monopoly money. And, uh, you know, for, for Jerome Powell to, to say something like that, it's just... Uh, I don't know if it's cluelessness, blindness, or just outright lying. I, I really yeah. have no idea. I, I honestly think that a lot of these guys really believe that, uh, you know, they believe the voodoo that they've been taught, and they actually think that they have the the wisdom and the wherewithal to manipulate the economy and, and centrally plan uh, the economy, and it's just absolute foolishness. There's no group of human beings in the world that have that information, and uh, when you start tinkering with prices, uh, including interest rates, all you're doing uh, – here's an analogy that I've used before. Before uh, – in the early stages of World War II when it looked like Germany was going to invade England, uh, the English went and took down all the road signs in, in and around London. And the idea was is if there weren't any road signs, it would kind of confuse the Germans and make it more difficult for them to navigate and get around. When you start manipulating and changing – prices and interest rates. That's exactly what you're doing to the economy. You're taking down the road signs. It makes it impossible for the market to function efficiently because nobody really knows what the actual prices are supposed to be. Prices tell us how to allocate resources. And the only way that you can come up with that is to have a functioning market. And and, and so the, the Fed has completely wrecked this. Uh, but they honestly believe. I think. I think they believe that they're that they're smarter than everybody else, and that you know we can do it right, despite the fact that we can look at time after time after time that these manipulations have ended in horrible crashes and and horrible economic consequences, and it, it gets increasingly worse. And I'm pretty pessimistic about the next ten to fifteen years. I don't think it's going to be uh, particularly good for the U.S. economy. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at Tesla, I don't know where I heard it, but um, Tesla's stock at its all-time high, I don't know what it did today, but um, it went from, you know, like, I think someone said that if you combine all publicly traded car companies um, and compare it to Tesla, they, they wouldn't be as big as Tesla. Yeah, I don't think th I don't think it's all yet, but yeah, if uh, Peter Schiff was talking about this okay, a couple yeah. of weeks ago, and, you know, if you take, you can take like Toyota and Chrysler Daimler and uh, I can't remember all the all the he, he named about six of the major car companies and their valuation together is less than the valuation of Tesla. How many Teslas are out there? I mean, not that many. <laughs> right. You know? and, and who can afford them and who wants a car that you have to plug in every 300 miles? Yeah. Uh, and it's again, it's absurd. But you see, that's the kind of thing that you see in a bubble economy. It's ex it's a lot like the dot com bubble that that we had back in the in the 1990s when you had these uh, you know these weird startup internet companies that didn't do anything they didn't have any assets they had uh, you know they had employees and a, and a and a good business plan and people were just dumping billions of dollars into these companies and, and you know eventually all of that all of that fell in because there wasn't anything real behind it and uh, i think you see that in in valuations with things like tesla and uh, you know, some of these other other companies, I mean, even some some big things you think like Uber or uh, Lyft, if you actually look at, at their financials, they're not really that good. They're not making any money. Uh, so people are just kind of betting that maybe someday it's going to be great and interest rates are low and they can just keep borrowing money. So, you know, away we go. 
And um, it, it's all fun and games until the wind blows and the house of cards falls over. Yeah, so we've we've talked about like the the fracture um, between you know the stock market and then the unemployment numbers. But in your Friday Gold Wrap podcast, you also talked about the housing market mm-hmm. and the delinquency rates. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic that we're seeing in the housing market right now. It's it's almost a split market. So on on one hand, you have a boom. Uh, we have inter- or mortgage rates, which kind of follow along with the interest rates. So when the Fed pushes interest rates down, mortgage rates are going to be down as well. We have mortgage rates that are at all-time lows. So that encourages people to buy homes. Um, and so when people are buying homes, obviously the price of homes is going to go up. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a, a kind of boom in the housing market. And, and in a lot of metro areas, we're seeing uh, a lot of houses being sold, a lot of money being made. Uh, it, it's like a mini bubble, uh, you know, not to the extent that we saw in 2006, 2007, but the same type of thing, just kind of this exuberance and, and hey, houses are going up and let's invest in houses. On the flip side of that, we have uh, delinquency rates, particularly in the subprime market, that are also at all-time highs. And uh, the particular number that I saw were the uh, delinquencies in FHA loans. And FHA is kind of the government program that makes a lot of the subprime borrowing possible. And uh, I think, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong about this, but I think it's at about 17%. Uh, I do know that it is the highest rate that of uh, delinquency for FHA loans that has ever existed since the uh, the uh, organization or the government entity came into existence, which I think was in the 1930s. Jeez. So you know, more de- a higher delinquency rate than we had in in 06, 07, 08. Uh, so that tells you that people are struggling to pay their mortgages, which makes sense. I mean, we have uh, you know thousands of people unemployed, millions of people unemployed, uh, and and we're starting to see a lot of those. uh, temporary furloughs turning into permanent furloughs. And and I think you're going to see that delinquency rate go even higher, and then it's going to move into foreclosure. And so then, then what happens, you know, then, then it's going to be kind of a, it could tip one way or the other. And, and, you know, a lot of people think that at that point, you're going to have a huge glut of houses on the market as people have to try to get out. And um, then you'll start to see that the prices of houses start to possibly dip. Uh, which is exactly what we saw in in 06, 07. I don't think that we're going to see, I don't think the next crisis is going to be a mortgage crisis, but I think this is just another example of how the economy is out of whack and, uh, you know, another kind of warning sign that um, things aren't as they should be. I think the real crisis is going to be in the dollar because of all of the money that's been printed over the last, you know, really six months well, I mean, we can go back to 2008. This was in the making before, but um, at some point, the the dollar is is going to, I think, uh, significantly collapse, and uh, I think that's where the big problem is. But I think you're going to see these secondary kind of things in the mortgage market, in the in the car market, where we had this huge glut of uh, car loans and. People can't pay this stuff because they're not working, and you know, a lot of people are on this unemployment, so. What happens if the government doesn't extend the benefits? Yeah, a lot of questions. And uh, depending on what happens with the Fed, what happens with the federal government, I think we could see uh, we could see some improvement even in the next maybe year. And then people will think, yeah, everything's fine. But eventually the bottom is going to fall out of this because, again, it is all artificially constructed and created. And, and you, you just can't maintain that forever. 
Yeah, I think you kind of referenced to it. Um, but if you can, could you kind of maybe describe what it is about bubbles that make them necessary to collapse? I think um, something that I always think is it's just creating artificial demand. Or right. is it, and, and then like people can't pay back the supply or the loans that they take out. Do you want to describe that a little more? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's it's a subtle dynamic. I mean, in in the kind of on the surface, it it is basically just like any anybody else. You get overextended, and uh, you know, just think about your own credit cards. You know, if if you've ever had credit trouble, I've had credit trouble. And when I was younger, I I was foolish and ran up some credit cards way beyond what I could pay, and. And then the economy starts to turn a little bit and interest rates start to go up and it gets harder and harder to pay that bill. Or something happens in the economy that, you know, restricts your income. Right. And then all of a sudden you're, you're left with this credit card that you can't pay anymore. And then you end up having to go into bankruptcy. Um, this happens on a larger scale with corporations and, and even with governments, but particularly corporations. You know, they they use these artificially low interest rates to. Uh, borrow money for stock buybacks or to, you know, do expansions that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to do given the circumstances. And then you have a coronavirus or something of that nature, and then incomes, revenues start to fall and you see bankruptcies and we can no longer pay these bills. And then, you know, the banks have to foreclose, you have bankruptcies. So, I mean, you can kind of see how that works on the on the surface, just like it would with uh, with the, your individual finances. On a broader kind of macroeconomic thing, what are the, all of this artificially low interest rates and this this stimulus money? What it does is it it encourages people to undertake uh, projects that really the economy itself cannot sustain. Um, you know, money is not. People often think of money as being wealth. Money isn't wealth. Money is just a, a mean of means of exchange. So there's a certain amount of stuff in the economy. When I say stuff, I mean resources, you know, uh, wood and concrete and steel and labor and all of this stuff. There's a given fixed amount of stuff. Just because I create more money doesn't change the amount of stuff. But it makes people think that there's more stuff and then there's more money bidding for this stuff. So what you'll see, you know, imagine if you started to build a house and uh, and you're led to believe that there there's a certain amount of uh, resources to build this house, certain number of bricks, a certain amount of wood, certain amount of glass. And then and then you get along and you get about two thirds of the way through and all of a sudden you realize, oh, my gosh, there's not enough bricks to finish this house. Mm. Well, then you're screwed, right? Because you either have to abandon the project or you have to shrink the project uh, because you simply cannot create these bricks out of thin air. They don't exist. That's basically what happens to the broader economy with these bubbles. There, there's not enough resources to complete all of these ambitious projects, and and so the, the whole thing starts to collapse and fall in. And you know, it can be in different areas. It's an interesting thing. A, a, an economist named Mark Thornton has come up with what is known as the skyscraper index. And if you can go back, and he's actually traced this back, you can go back to all of the big busts, the big, the Great Depression, uh, the 2008 crisis, the, the dot-com bubble popping. Just before that happens, you, often, you, you always see huge skyscrapers being built. Uh, and, and generally, you'll have a record-setting skyscraper that will be built or started right before the collapse. And in, in fact, we had that 
uh, just a couple of years ago with some of these large skyscrapers out in uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, and, and that's kind of a, a, a visual picture of what they're doing. They embark on these huge overzealous projects that the economy simply can't uh, sustain and then uh, you know, realize, oh my gosh, we don't have the resources to do this. So then everything has to correct and out resources have to be allocated back to the important things and uh, you know, back to savings because ultimately a savings is what what makes the economy run. So right. it's it's a kind of a complicated thing in a lot of ways because economics is kind of complicated. <laughs> but in, in some ways it really I mean if you think about it, it, it makes sense when you think about it. You're you're led to believe by these artificial signals that there is more available to do things than there actually is. So it entices you to overextend yourself. And uh, once you're overextended, you know, you, at some point you realize, oh, my gosh, I can't pay for this. I can't I don't have the resources for this. And, you know, again, I've experienced this in my own personal life, uh, you know, with with getting into debt. I have uh, these credit card bills and I've got a lot of nice stuff that I thought I could afford that I really couldn't because I didn't have the resources to do it. So that's right. really in a nutshell what you're seeing with the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And now you also work with the Tenth Amendment Center. I do. And I hear that you do you did some work today on uh, civil asset forfeiture. Um, can you kind of explain what's going on there and um, why you consider it to be theft? Yeah, uh, you know it's interesting, and, and the reason that uh, it came up today is I got an email from a guy. We actually so there are a number of uh, policy areas that we work on in the Tenth Amendment Center, and the asset forfeitures among those policy areas. And I recently wrote an article for the 10th Amendment Center uh, called, it's basically just an overview of the work that we've done over the last year in the asset forfeiture area. And, and a guy sent me an email and he was like, you know, I get that the whole idea that we don't want to, you know, have policing for profit where the police are just going out looking for people so they can get their stuff. But he said that as a, uh, you know, as somebody who grew up in a police family, he thinks that you know criminals should not be able to keep stuff that they gain from crimes or that they use to commit a crime. And he misunderstands the problem with asset forfeiture because I think most of us would agree if 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 I am a criminal and I you know get money doing something that's criminal and we, we can debate whether or not certain things should be crimes or not that's a different issue. But let's just you know leave it as a given that there are certain things that are crimes. Um, I think most people would say, yeah, that's fair if you have an ill-gotten gain or if you use a certain asset to commit a crime, it's fair that the state should be able to seize those those assets. The problem is the state doesn't have to prove that you committed a crime. There's no conviction required in most cases for civil asset forfeiture. So in practice, what happens is you'll have cops that – pull over some poor schmuck driving down the road and he has $5,000 in cash on him. Let's say he's going to go, he's going to go buy a used car. Well, the cop can say, you know what? I think that's drug money and take the $5,000. Never even arrest the guy. Never find drug one. The guy has nothing to do with drugs, but his $5,000 is now, uh, now in control of the police department. Now that man is in a situation where the state can go and seize that permanently, and he has to prove that it wasn't drug money. Well, how, how do you prove a negative? You can't. It flips due process on its head. It requires the innocent to prove their innocence as opposed to the state having to prove guilt. And it's it's just a completely uh, unjust system. So 
the reform that we are primarily pushing for at the state level is simply require a conviction. You can't take somebody's stuff until they're convicted of a crime. Uh, to me, that is just basic. I, I can't imagine how anybody could say, well, that's not a good idea. You know? Right. But we have very powerful police department lobbies in this country that depend on that money to fund their departments and to fund their toys. And they like being able to drive the souped up Dodge Charger that they got off of a drug dealer uh, mm. that they may or may not have ever convicted. And so it's very difficult to get these reforms worked through the system. And uh, it literally is theft. If you can take somebody's stuff when they haven't been proven to do anything wrong, I don't know what else that you can call it. And uh, we have this at the state level. We also have federal asset forfeiture, um, which a lot of states, even when they reform their asset forfeiture laws, the, the police will just say, okay, we'll do this through the federal government. And then the federal government, through a program called equitable sharing, gives back up to 80% of that um, that seized property to the police department that uh, that got it. And, and so that allows them to kind of do a runaround around state reforms. So what we're pushing for at the 10th Amendment Center is, number one, states should always require a conviction before any assets can be permanently seized. And number two, they should opt out of this federal program uh, and, and not allow police to simply pass cases off to the federal government and then collect the proceeds. If it's a state case, it should be handled at the state level under the state law. And so that's really what we're pushing for at the 10th Amendment Center. And there's quite a bit of momentum right now uh, across the country to reform asset forfeiture laws. So it's it's uh, it's something that's growing. I think it's a positive thing. And I think most rational people, when they understand what's going on and, and they look at it objectively, well, of course, somebody should be convicted before they're punished. Right. Right. Um, and, and that's really all that all that we're asking for. I mean, to me, it shouldn't even be controversial. But, um, you know, we, we live in a weird political world where. You know, some people uh, think that, you know, if it involves the police and it must be good, so therefore they should be able to do what they want, which I think is kind of dangerous. Yeah. Are you working on any um, qualified immunity at the state level as well? Yeah, actually, we are we are working in that area as well. Um, of course, right now, uh, most state legislatures are not in session. Um, generally, state legislatures run beginning uh, the first couple of weeks of January and then usually run into April or May. So that's our really busy time in terms of, of legislative action. Uh, there are a few state legislatures, uh, Michigan, California, um, New York, that run longer, uh, almost year round. So uh, we have seen some states actually pass laws at the state level to uh, create a process to sue in state court that avoids the whole qualified immunity thing. Qualified immunity is a federal thing. It's been created by the federal courts. If you sue, <coughs> excuse me, if you sue a police officer for violating your rights under the U.S. Constitution, it's going to go to federal court and this qualified immunity defense, which basically is impossible to get around, uh, then uh, you're basically going to be hosed. So what a lot of states, I, I think you'll see a lot of states really do this when we get back into the session this year. What they do is they create a process under the state constitution, which all states have a bill of rights in their constitution, which is very similar to the federal bill of rights. It creates a process in state court and it stipulates qualified immunity is not a defense and it allows people to get justice if their rights are violated by a police officer 
through the state courts without having the federal qualified immunity come into play. So it's kind of a way to work around what, in my opinion, is an awful, awful uh, judicial precedent that was created by the courts over the years and then applied uh, across the country in in a way that was never intended in the uh, in the American system. This should have always been handled at the state level to begin with. So, I mean, maybe there's a silver lining there that that people will pay a little bit more attention to their state constitutions and their state bill of rights and quit trying to run to the feds to to fix everything. Because uh, believe me, the feds aren't going to fix anything. They're going to just make things worse. Yeah, um, that actually goes to my next question, just kind of on a broader level. Um, are you seeing, do you believe that people are starting to be more accepting of states' rights? Are they looking to, towards their states? Or because I something that I find very interesting about um, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of the civil unrest we're seeing today is um, whereas you and I as libertarians, we might be in favor of, you know, just voluntary associations, people with different value systems associating in different locations or, or such like that. Um, it almost seems like that idea isn't very present in the country right now. And a lot of different sides are just vying to to require others to submit to their authority. Right. So what do you what do you make of that? Well, you know, I, I think that what I have found, I've worked with the Tenth Amendment Center for 10 years. So I started under the Obama administration and I've transitioned into the Trump administration. And what I have found is that people love decentralization when their guy is not in power. When their guy is in control, then they want to shove it down everybody's throat. Right. And uh, and, and so we saw this shift when I first started with the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, if you talked about states' rights, I hate that term because states don't really have rights. We're really talking mm -hmm. about state sovereignty where uh, states are able to create their own policies, let California experiment with their socialist utopia, but leave Nebraska out of it. You know, let Nebraska right. be uh, as conservative as it wants to be. Um, instead of having a one-size-fits-all policy imposed by the federal government. And that's the system that was intended by the, by the founders. That, that is the American system. We call it federalism. And uh, the central authority is supposed to do very little, and most, uh, most policy should be set at the state and local level. Um, and, instead, we flip that on its head, and now everything is, is you know imposed from Washington, D.C. Well, during the uh, during the Obama years, uh, the left was fine with that because Obama was in the White House, and and uh, if you talked about decentralization or or uh, state sovereignty, then you were labeled a racist or a neo Confederate and and yelled at. <laughs> well, that's completely shifted. Now we have a lot of folks on on the left that. Uh, at least in theory right now, like the idea of decentralization because they want to get away from Trump. And so, you know, we've really seen this in the sanctuary city movements with immigration. You know, that's been something that's been that's been bubbling for the last three or four years. Uh, we've even heard people talk about California seceding so that, you know, the ultimate in decentralization. On the other hand, the Trump people, the Tea Party people, the, all those people who are you know, asking me to come to their events and speak about the Constitution and decentralization. Now they're sending me nasty emails, and you know they want the uh, federal government to send troops into Portland to quell the unrest. And, and and so, really, decentralization tends to be something that the the folks that are out of power like, and the folks that are in power don't like. What people need to understand 
is that no matter who's in power right now, at some point, somebody that you don't like is going to have that same power. We need to learn that lesson. The left should have learned it. They should have learned that all of this power that, you know, Obama's pen and phone and his executive orders, that someday there was going to be a Donald Trump who was going to have all of that authority and operate off of all of that precedent. And the right needs to do the same thing right now because they're making excuses for Donald Trump when he does these horrible unconstitutional overreaches. And they don't seem to realize that at some point there's going to be a Joe Biden or if not a Joe Biden, an AOC or somebody is going to be in there that's going to take that power. My my fundamental principle is that liberty is going to be preserved when there is the least amount of government power possible. So I don't even want my guys to have power. If you put a bunch of libertarians in the White House, I would not want them to exercise unconstitutional powers for liberty because I know that at some point they would be out of power and all of that precedent would be set and somebody horrible would use that power against me. Uh, you know, don't let people have power that you wouldn't want your ex-wife to have over you. You don't understand that because you don't have an ex-wife. But, you know, you don't want you don't want people that don't like you or that have something against you to have power over you. And that's what people are doing when they keep turning to the federal government for all of this power. So that's my key message that I would always want people to go home with. Always push for decentralization, local government as little power as possible. That is the only way that you're going to preserve your liberty. You're not going to impose liberty from the top. And uh, the more power you give the government, the more tools you're giving them to oppress you when somebody you don't like has that power. Yeah. And I think a very important um, part of the idea that, you know, it's not so much about states' rights, but it's about, you know, sovereignty, state sovereignty. I think a very important part about that is that, um, you know, individuals have rights. Individuals are sovereigns. Right. You know, the whole basis for our government is, you know, the, it's legitimized by we, the people, the consent of the people. Mm -hmm. So the theory is that, you know, well, the reason that state governments have are sovereign is because the individuals who are sovereign have granted that power. Exactly. So I think, and you know, like even, even um, people who, I think it actually that idea is kind of the base of most ideals within this country, like mm -hmm. people who are in favor of democracy, you know, the whole idea, one person, one vote, where people who are in favor of decentralization, they're in favor of individual rights. I think it can appeal to everyone. People just need to see that it is the moral route and it starts with right. the idea that we're all equal. Yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And this, you know, I, I think dovetailing into being a little bit more philosophical human nature, I think there's some weird thing in people that they want to, there's, there's almost this drive to impose our will on other people. And we've got to figure out a way to let go of that. You know, we, we've got to allow people to chart their own path and do their own thing. And, and even if it's something that you abhor, if it's not physically hurting you, let them go, you know? And and we see this on both sides, you know, and, you know, on I've, I've, I used to be part of the religious right. And, you know, I wanted to impose the, that morality, God's morals on the country because God would be, would be a great nation. No, you know, you can't force people into a moral position. And, and by the same token, I would say to folks that, you know, I I don't like racism. I'm married to an African-American woman, you know. Racism is not a good thing, but I can't force people to not be racist. That's a, that's a matter of the heart. There's no policy that is going to make people unracist. So all of this posturing to 
end racism. You're not doing anything. You're just virtue signaling and posturing. And and we have to be willing to let people do their own thing and and take away the power that allows those people to act on others. Racists are harmless, basically, if you don't give them any kind of levers of power. But when you put racists in the government, then you got a problem. <laughs> That's a very good point. And that kind of goes more into the um, religious aspect, since uh, we are talking more philosophically, since this is the first video interview that I've done with you, I've noticed your tattoo, which is also the oh, yeah. the logo from your podcast. Um, what have you been thinking from a religious standpoint uh, regarding everything that's going on in the country right now? I've noticed um, I'm here in school, uh, all the disaster in the world, it seems to be heightened right now. Um all I can find is, you know, I'm not as much interested in politics as I am religion in yeah. times like this. And, you know, that is what revelation is. Um, we're revealing ourselves, you know, right now. Um, do you kind of want to talk about what's been going on and uh, share a little bit of the gospel if you can? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that that you said that because I've I've had that same impulse to to kind of pull away from the politics. And you know, to me, politics is it's it's kind of a necessary evil because we have this government and we have <clears throat> this platform of power that people can use to wield over others. And I think we have to work to try to minimize that and limit it because it's harmful to other people. <clears throat> but I've also realized that, you know, there 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 are a lot of things that I have no control over. Really, I have no control over who the president is. I have no control over uh, what my mayor says about shutting down the economy. Um, There's just a lot of things that we do not have control over. And so I've really found myself trying to to figure out how can – I'm having throat problems here. Oh, you're okay. How can I live my life in such a way to minimize the negative impacts of all of these other people? by controlling what in my own life that I can control. I can control my reactions to other people. You know, I can control the way I treat others. I can do things in my community to make my community a better place. Uh, I can I can reach out to people that are hurting in my community and, and, and try to help them in some way. Um, I can do things within my own family to try to shield uh, us from the negative impacts of government programs of the economy. You know, uh, there's some elements of, of preparedness, being ready for uh, the eventualities of an economic collapse and, and things like that. Just trying to kind of, it, it's 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 almost, a, if, if you're familiar with stoicism as a philosophy, it's kind of a stoic uh, uh, approach where you can control what you can control and then you let the rest go. And, you know, the key is learning what you can control and what you can't. And one of the key aspects of that is is really controlling your own self, you know, and and just looking at the world and, and knowing that, you know, I can't control you and I can't control uh, the people down the street and I shouldn't try. But I can control how I react to them. I can control how I interact with other people. Um, I don't have to let other people make me angry or uh, you know, steal my joy. And that's something that, you know, from, from a spiritual standpoint, I've really been trying to, I'm kind of a pessimist by nature. So I've really been trying to just focus on the good news of the gospel, the fact that God is always on the throne, the fact that there is love in this world, that there is beauty in this world, and that 
we can make a concerted effort to tap into those things, into the good things, you know, um, I, the scripture reference just popped into my head, of course, but I can't, I can't pull out the reference, but, you know, reflecting on the things that are good, love, hope, faith, mercy, all of these things, uh, as opposed to getting mired in uh, the, the grossness and the politics and things like that. So, um, yeah, really just trying to, trying to, to control those things that I can control, to let go of that which I can't, and to focus on, uh, you know, the eternal things. My, one of my favorite scriptures is in 2 Corinthians, uh, it's verses, uh, chapter 4, 17 and 18, and, and it says, um, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There's an unseen reality in this world that is that is full of love and grace and peace and mercy that that is working its way through the world. You know, it's like leaven in a bread in in the bread, as Jesus put it in one of the parables. It's yeast working through the bread. And it is there and it is going to have an impact. And we need to focus our eyes on those things and not get caught up in what's temporary and just try to really focus on what's eternal. And um and and then just the basics. Love God and love your neighbor. And to me that's you know, that to me dovetails with the whole idea of libertarian philosophy. It's it's the non-aggression principle that I'm going to love you. I'm going to allow you to act. I'm not going to do anything to harm you. And and all I ask in return is please don't harm me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and if we could just if we could just capture those simple things, think about how much more beautiful our interactions with other people would be, you know, as opposed to everything being adversarial and I've got to make you do this and, you know, resist and all of this, all of this nonsense. So trying to focus more on, on what's positive and, and, and the good things in life, because, you know, uh, when when you get to, you start getting old, I'm not really old, I'm 53, (laughs) but, um, you, you do start to realize that, you know, we have a very limited, uh, a limited footprint on this earth. And, uh, there's no sense in spending it being miserable, you know. Uh, right. My mom is battling cancer right now, and just, you know, looking at the way that she's trying to trying to find good out of each day that she has, um, it's it's pretty inspiring, and it reminds you that, you know, again, these these light and momentary troubles are temporary, and we can find joy in every moment if we just stop and and try to do that and and look to something beyond ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I'm. <laughs> My next guest um, this weekend is actually going to be my cousin, who I've had on the show before, who was diagnosed with um, a very rare and dangerous cancer as well, a blood cancer. Um, And his perspective is very similar. When you see him walk into the room, you know, during the coronavirus, he gave me a hug. Um, People who said that he would never, people who said that they would never give hugs to people during the coronavirus, he'd walk up to them and give them hugs right. and it's just it's that that is is beautiful I'm, I'm also reading a book called being mortal and it's talking about what we actually value at the mm-hmm. end and it's not so much you know we shouldn't especially dur- during the coronavirus you know the the end goal isn't always preserving life right it's you know making sure that our life was valuable and we we did the right things in the end so um, yeah, I really appreciate that message, and I, I appreciate you coming on. If there's anything else that you want to say, please do, and then um, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, well, I mean that that pretty much sums it up. Uh, I appreciate being on. It's always a good it's always a good discussion. You ask very poignant questions, and <laughs> uh, 
So I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, awesome. You can find you can find me at a number of places. TenthAmendmentCenter.com is probably the primary spot that you will find my work. Um, Tenth is all spelled out T E N T H, and uh, you know this is all about decentralization and uh, trying to limit federal power. And we do it through a number of policies. We talked about asset forfeiture, but we do sound money. We do uh, the right to keep and bear arms. We do uh, we try to limit the surveillance state. You know, we are heavily involved in in ending the drug war and ending the uh, ending the police state. So all of those things. If you go to tenthamendmentcenter.com, you'll see what we're doing over there. Um, that's the practical work that I do. You can also find uh, find me at shiftgold.com/news. Uh, I do all the content for the Shift Gold website. Shift Gold is a gold company. Uh, we sell physical gold and silver, and uh, you can check that out over there if you're interested in the economic stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, I write about it every day, and I do a, a weekly podcast called The Friday Gold Wrap, where uh, I kind of do uh, news as it relates to the precious metals markets. A lot of it is what we've talked about today, the Federal Reserve and, and the monetary policy, because that really drives uh, the price of gold. And then uh, if you're if you're a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, you're just interested in how religion and, and Christianity intersects with politics and, and libertarianism and voluntarism, you can go to godarchy.org. Uh, I have a podcast over there as well. Uh, a couple of week, a couple of episodes back, I uh, interviewed Ron Paul, which was really cool. Uh, so people can check that out. Um, the episode is coming up. I talked to a guy who uh, who's who's done an in-depth study of uh, uh, the proverbs, and so we talk about wisdom and what that means and how that applies to our lives. So uh, I hit everything over there from uh, <clears throat> you know hardcore political philosophy to theology. So kind of a kind of a neat place. And uh, tomorrow, uh, as we're recording this, we're recording this on uh, on September 16th. September 17th is Constitution Day. And uh, funny thing about Constitution Day, the federal government celebrates it by an unconstitutional act, <laughs> um, which which is ironic and not shocking at all. But they actually, uh, Constitution Day, the, the federal government actually requires public schools to teach the Constitution, and the federal government has no authority to be teaching the Constitution. So if you want to celebrate Constitution Day, uh, even if this episode comes out a little after that, uh, you can pick up my book, Constitution Owner's Manual. If you want to learn about the Constitution, what does it really mean? Uh, what do all these phrases and clauses mean? How did, was it understood when it was ratified? I go through all of that, and you can check out more on that at constitutionownersmanual.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for having me, man. It's the weekend, we can let go.